All right. Find your Bibles or your technology and open it up to Psalm 85. I'm going to be sharing for a moment or two out of Psalm 85. And as you're making your way there, we're continuing in the I Love Revival series. Not to belabor it, but it wasn't on the original list. But there's just been a sweet stir of God amongst us. And so we're just trying to be open to those spontaneous moments where we can go ahead and teach and share from what God is saying. Um, this weekend, I uh, was blessed to be in Columbia, able to share with about 50, there's I think a little more than 50 uh, pastors and some Christian activists in the area of Reformation, and I think it was a productive time together, and uh, so that was impactful, but I was reminded of something as I was uh, just kind of teaching and sharing with the group that had gathered there, that that revival and Reformation are really different sides of the same coin. Uh, revival without Reformation is probably a good service. I mean, we can have good services and we can uh, have a light refreshing that comes through, but it's incomplete unless something outside the borders of the church begins to take place. And uh, Reformation uh, without revival is really a duty. And that has a place where all uh, Christians that know there are certain disciplines and duties we probably ought to enter into. But we know that unless the heart is changed, unless the heart is moved towards God, um, at best people you know, may capitulate to leveraging or pressure or legislation or whatever the, it may be. But, but the, the fact of the matter is ultimately people have to have a heart change. And so revival and reformation are both important things and there are things to be pursued even on their own. But ultimately... For it to work as God intended, revival and reformation need to be uh, happening together. And so, you know, I've got a reformation heart, but what we need also is a revival spirit. And so the first week we defined revival as something that you couldn't pray for or aspire to. Uh, it was something that God alone can do. In fact, I found another definition for it. This is just one I stumbled across in some of my studies. It was this. Revival is when God gets so sick and tired of being misrepresented that he shows up himself. I thought to myself, that's pretty good. That's revival. Last week, um, we heard a little bit about revival praying, positioning yourself for revival, soliciting God to send a revival to his church. And there was a great stir. Robert shared with us and, and people responded. So we're sensing revival is in the air. And today's our third week and we're going to explore a little bit different aspect of revival and one that was really birthed from some research that I came across, just studying it again and trying to see what God was doing across the globe. And I found a study uh, generated by one gentleman who has, according to... Uh, his sources exhaustively studied what the moves of God around the globe have done. And he has attempted by using a certain metric of determining whether or not a move of God or this outpouring of his spirit is defined as a revival. He uses, he uses several standards or measurements or metrics in order to de determine these things. And he, through his research, has determined that in the last 20 years globally, this is a global uh, a number that there have been 800 authenticated revivals over the last 20 years 800 now that sounds good and, and indeed any revival is good 
But he said in that same 20-year time period, according to these same metrics and his research, that there have only been two revivals in America. Now that isn't so good, is it? If there's 800 in the globe, around the globe, and only two in America, that research tells us, if it's to be believed, that one-fourth of one percent, let me tell you, this really stretched my math skills, one-fourth of one percent of all revivals that took place in the last 20 years happened in the United States. Now, how would you begin to analyze that? Would you say to yourself, well, maybe we don't need one? I'm not sure that's the right analysis. And it seems strange as I began to think about it for a country like America that claims to be a Christian nation that we would only have one quarter of one percent of the moving of the Spirit in our midst. I mean, does not that seem strange for a nation which supposedly has religious freedom? Does it not seem odd to you in a nation that has 360,000 churches, untold millions of professing Christians? We have access to television sermons, media sermons. We have a church on every corner that we will cater to every imaginable and, and real spiritual need that may be there. Uh, no one in this country has to go more than really a few blocks, unless you're out in a rural section perhaps, that, that can't find a church to attend. We really don't have to inconvenience ourselves with regards to accessing uh, corporate life, church life, uh, spiritual things. Does it not seem odd to you that we represent less than 1% of all revivals globally in the last 20 years? Let it sink in. To say that God is with us, I wonder at times, this is just me, if we are being presumptuous. Leonard Ravenhill, I've been reading his book, which by the way I've hijacked for my title today. Leonard Ravenhill in his book, Why Revival Tarries, said, as long as we're content to live without revival, we will. So there is an appropriate sanctified discontentment where we say, God, we want you. We desperately want you. So I want to talk about that today in the few moments we have. I want to talk about why revival tarries. I want to quote, if you've never read Ravenhill's book under that same title, I encourage you to get it. You might be able to get it free, you know, online now. It's an old, old book, but it's a great book. He, he says so many uh, wonderful things by way of bullet point quotations that I want to quote some of what he said uh, through the message today. But I want to begin in Psalm 85, and I want to read to you what the psalmist says here as we begin today, talking about why revival tarries. Psalm 85, verse 1, we read, Lord, you've been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Now, just by way of just marking this for your understanding, he, he, he begins to turn a corner. And he says, restore us, O God of our salvation. Now, he, the psalmist says, you've done a lot of great things here, but now he's turning a corner. You've done these great things. But, but, now, but now I'm asking you for something. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger towards us to cease. 
Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We've been talking about joy today, haven't we? And the psalmist psalmist alludes to that, that joy is restored when revival takes place. Psalm 85, 1 through 6, why revival tarries. Psalm 85, interestingly, is one of those psalms that we cannot instantly attribute to a person. David wrote almost all of them, but we do know that he didn't write exclusively all of them, and and we're not exactly sure who may have written Psalm 85. Many call it the post-exilic psalm, because honestly, it may have been written by an Ezra or Nehemiah, which kind of helps us understand sort of the mood of the day and why the psalmist would write what he did. Because as you'll recall, there was a moment God did bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. Uh, The northern kingdom was judged before the southern kingdom, but ultimately both found their way into a judgment season. And for 70 years, they were in this season that God put them into uh, their own wilderness or into their own captivity. And the good news was that even though they were in this captivity for seven years, that God also prophesied through his servants that uh, there would come a day that they would be brought out of this captivity, the day of their discipline would be over, and they would be released from these things, and they would be able to come back and uh, find a place in their homeland again. And so the psalmist begins to give thanks to God for their deliverance. It's post-exilic. In other words, they've come back, they're getting back to their land, they're getting back to life as normal, things are are looking up, and so he gives God thanks. He says, thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your forgiveness. I mean, if you've been in captivity for 70 years, I would think that if you were released and you're walking out of your prison, wouldn't you say, hallelujah, I'm out of prison. You know, the day of of captivity is over. I'm being released. Praise God, I'm out. And so we see that taking place. But deliverance and forgiveness, while great and necessary, are not the end of the story. The psalmist says, Lord, we need restored. We need some things restored to us. We've been in captivity and we're glad that you released us, but now we need restoration. And not only that, are are, are you going to continue to be irritated and aggravated and angry with us? Will you revive us so that we might have our joy restored again and it might return to the camp? And I thought to myself, that's really a great psalm, maybe for America today. You know, we experience a lot of good things to which we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for delivering me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for bringing me out of certain captivities. But let's be candid. We, we are not walking in all that God would want for us. We are not walking in all that he calls us to walk in or all that he commands us to walk in. And so I want to talk a moment about what I call the subtle deception of the American church. The subtle deception of the American church. Now, let me be clear. I'm glad to be an American If I had a choice to be dropped in any nation, this would be my choice. I'm glad providentially I find myself in America. I I can look across the world and say to myself, you know, America has its problems, but at least for the moment, I'm grateful to be here. So I'm not speaking from any sense of ingratitude, but even being grateful for where you are and where you live and, and, you know, you can be grateful to live in Charleston. You know how many people would want to even live in Charleston, South Carolina, and you do. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. But our gratitude cannot blind us to the spiritual realities of where we live. I'm not a blind patriot. 
I'm not somebody who thinks America can do no wrong and America is God's promised land and therefore it's, you know, it's past thinking it can be judged. This was a mistake the Israelites made. The Israelites knew that they were indeed, because God had said it, you're the apple of my eye. His heart was toward Israel. And we need to understand that God's heart can be toward us, but that doesn't exclude us from the possibility of his discipline or his judgment or his dealings. People have said for years the phrase, numbers don't lie. That's true. Numbers, with regards to any research on any subject, numbers paint a portion, hear me, a portion of reality. And this revival study paints a portion of reality. Certainly there are churches, revival stirring in churches, God's moving in churches. There's, there's numbers probably thousands, I would suppose, that God is doing a great work in. And there's what we would call a revival spirit or a refreshing spirit. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to his church. I know about revival. I mentioned to you, and if you pray for pastor this week, because Wednesday is when I'm giving that uh, short tour on Anson Street, where I'm gathering with a group somewhere, they've told me now, between 12 and 18 denominational leaders are coming to Charleston, South Carolina, in order to have sort of a, a seminar or a summit on a revival and reconciliation is the summit. And uh, let's just say 18 of them are coming, and a part of their tour is to hear the story of the Anson Street Revival. And so I'm going to be standing on the corner of Anson Street and Calhoun, right there probably at the Galliard Auditorium, with these denominational leaders, and they want me to share with them the Anson Street Revival, and then we're going to pray together that what God did one time before, he'd come to Charleston and he'd do it again. And these leaders, interestingly, because I asked, I was on a phone call the other day, and these leaders together, I was told, represent over, hear me now, 30,000 churches. That's a lot of churches. Now, if you have leaders from that representation of churches and they're coming to hear about revival, can you believe that God is wanting to say something in this area? He's trying to speak about revival. But when America is significantly less than 1% of the geographical area of which any revival has taken place in the last 20 years, we have to ask ourselves, is it any wonder that America has faced the issues we have faced? It was Ravenhill who said in the book that I'll mention, he said Sodom, which had no Bible, no preachers, no tracts, no prayer meetings, no churches, perished. How then will America and England be spared from the wrath of the Almighty, think you? We have millions of Bibles, scores of thousands of churches, endless preachers, and yet what sin? Ravenhill was the one who originated the quote, that if God allows America to get away with her sin, then he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So the question comes up, and he begins to address it. He's not like me. You know, me, I, you know, pastor always thinks in outlines. My whole life is an outline. I see life in an outline. And, and, and Ravenhill just sort of writes sort of freely and fluidly, and you'll find that, that his writing is, is, is just different. But, but I wanted to sort of springboard off his book and and just suggest some things now he wrote his book i think like in the 1950s and here we are in 2017 and i think there are just some other things if i could presume to add or enlarge upon to answer the question why revival has tarried in america why has revival tarried 
in America. This is important because I understand all of our lives are full of a thousand other responsibilities. We have expectations upon us. But this is far more critical. The economy, hear me when I say this, people, people laugh and they can laugh away, but the economy hinges on revival. Your business, your job hinges on revival. Your children's future hinges on revival. Your freedoms hinge on revival. Your safety hinges on revival. I know you can think me strange. You can call me an alarmist, stupid, overly spiritual, and people will think what they want to think. But I know, I know history. I know the history of God's hand. America is on the edge. Listen, what has saved us from unprecedented terrorist attacks is the sliver of a righteous remnant who has continued to pray in this nation. Because the moment, and we're on the brink of it, we're on the precipice, that's the anointing right there. That's what it makes you do. We're on that precipice that if God lifts his hand, do you understand that if we no longer have the safety of Psalm 91, they used to have years ago, they had this nuclear clock. Some of you are too young to, to know this, but I, I can even remember as a young, young kid, there was a nuclear clock that they would have that would, that would uh, scientists would set the clock on a certain place and in order to signify how close the world was to nuclear disaster. And, and, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Kennedy found out that Khrushchev was putting missiles there in Cuba, nuclear missiles that could be launched almost as far as Seattle. That's why it caused such a stir. My dad was an air traffic controller, and they literally shut down the air traffic control system and locked them in. This was very personal in our household. He couldn't go anywhere for about a week because... They didn't know what was going to happen. We have no idea how close we were to nuclear disaster when that whole thing took place. And the scientists moved the clock up to 11.59, midnight, indicating a nuclear disaster. They moved the clock to 11.59. I'm here to tell you that God's clock is probably right there, about 11.59. We're going to have to understand that, that His protection and His safety, He keeps His arms around his people and he keeps his arms around nations that respond to him and we have no idea we have no understanding in all of this god people have often said i don't believe that god judges anymore listen god doesn't have to specifically initiate any judgment anymore all god has to do to, and 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 he would never do this to the vicars because you love the lord i'm just using you as an example but all god would have to do to get bill and andrea's attention if he wanted to was simply just lift his hand and walk away he didn't judge you he didn't make anything come to you he just simply says if you want it have it your way see that's what ought to put the fear of the lord in us to the place where we say i, I can't i've got to i got to stay under his hand i've got to stay under the blessing and but america has determined it will go other ways now we may have been given a reprieve I don't know how all this is going to shake out in the next four, eight years. I don't know, but we'll find out. I know this much. We are teetering, and, and we have to pray that God sends his spirit upon us again. Now, I just want to suggest some things. And sermons like these, and I even thought about it, because sometimes it's best when you're kind of constructing a sermon. You ought to go at it from maybe the positive exhortation 
direction, you know. We, we ought to try to do this. We ought to go this direction. And I understand that a lot of times that's, that's a better way to go about it. But honestly, I think that if sometimes you don't identify what's wrong, you can't implement what's right. In other words, you have to quit what's wrong in order to get to what's right. And I'm just suggesting, and again, I'm not suggesting necessarily you personally would fit under this. You may well, and you need to consider what that means for you. But I am just saying by way of declaration that these are things that we all, as the church, we all, and we have people that watch Legacy through live stream, through Facebook. We have people that watch Legacy through YouTube. We really reach a lot of people. I understand that we're not the biggest church in the world, but we reach a lot of people through technology. And so we need to get the word out that revival tarries for certain reasons. And let me suggest several. And I'm going to move again. I promise we'll move through this quickly. We have, number one, lost our sense of eternity. We have lost our sense of eternity. There is, there is no sense, I believe, at large to the reality of heaven or hell. There's no sense of lostness anymore. I, just, I was mentioning this the other day. I attend funerals. And uh, gratefully, uh, I don't have to necessarily officiate as many, but I have attended funerals. And it's interesting to me how, for all practical purposes, the church has become universalist in its practice because it doesn't matter who the person is, we preach them into heaven. We find a way. We find, we find a caveat. We find a loophole. We find some way that we're going to get that person in there. Now, again, God's merciful. He's long-suffering. He's... He's, he's not looking for ways to exclude anybody. But revival tarries, I think, because we sort of got to the place where we just figure everybody's okay. Everybody's probably okay. There's really no need to regain our passion for people because truthfully, we aren't sure anyone's really lost anymore. Ravenhill says this. He says, but you know, if God should stamp eternity or even judgment on, your, on our eyeballs, or if you'd like on the fleshly table of our hearts, I am quite convinced we'd be a very, very different tribe of people, God's people, in the world today. We live too much in time. We're too earthbound. We see as other men see. We think as other men think. We invest our time as the world invests its time. We're supposed to be a different breed of people. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ needs a new revelation of the majesty of God. We're all going to stand one day, can you imagine it, at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body. This is what, this is the king of kings, and he's the judge of judges, and it's the tribunal of tribunals, and there's no court of appeal after it, his verdict is final. He goes on, oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. If we could live every moment of every day under the eye of God, if we did every act in the light of the judgment seat, if we sold every article in the light of the judgment seat, if we prayed every prayer in the light of the judgment seat, if we tithed all our possessions in the light of the judgment seat, if we preachers preached every sermon with one eye on damned humanity and the other on the judgment seat, then we would have a Holy Ghost revival that would shake this earth and that in no time at all would liberate millions of precious souls. When was the last time you just heard a good old sermon on hell? Now you may say, well, I heard you preach on it once, Pastor. And it's probably been too long. But have we lost our sense of eternity? You know, this life seems long. But it's not as long as eternity. 
We've got to get that sense back. That's why revival tarries. We don't think it's important. Number two is we've allowed our affluence to hide our needs. Now, hear me. You, you, you know me and you know legacy. Prosperity and money are not bad things. Can you say amen? Prosperity is not bad. I assure you, if given the choice between poverty and prosperity, who amongst us wouldn't choose? Well, yeah, I'd like to prosper a little. Nobody, nobody, nobody says, well, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really great. I can't pay my bills. I can't do this. Can't, 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 can't. Nobody, nobody's going to say that. And honestly, the word doesn't teach that we have to be impoverished. I would choose prosperity. God's word teaches that it's his will that we prosper. The Bible literally says this, that we prosper in all things. We should prosper in every area of life. And the Church of America, I think, is a prosperous church. At least in terms of global per capita income, we'd lead the world in average yearly salaries as believers. But as much as that is a blessing, therein lies our problem. Our prosperity hides our needs. Money. You know what I found out about money? Money, money for a while can solve problems. But I'm here to tell you that money can't solve every problem. And it can't solve problems forever we don't need god's protection because what do we do well we spend untold hundreds of billions of dollars in military defense now i believe a nation should defend its citizenry but we don't trust god anymore because we just have enough money to protect ourselves you see money hides our need we'll trust the cia to figure out who the terrorists are we'll trust the fbi we sure hope the national security advisor and we'll even elect a president believing that these guys are now on the job they're going to protect us i'm here to tell you we will not be protected by man but we'll only be protected by god it's our affluence that hides our real needs i don't know if you heard this the other day there was a russian submarine that was spotted only a few days ago off the coast of delaware those submarines hold nuclear weapons. They're loaded. But for the grace of God, we're all still here. Your money isn't going to stop that sub. Only God's hand. Number three, why revival tarries? We become technologically distracted. I won't spend much time on this, but is this not a distraction? Now, this is the unfortunate part for me. My, my, my watch is on my phone. So it's almost like you've got to look at your phone in order to know what time it is because I don't wear a watch anymore. But it's funny to me, and I just was thinking about this, and I guess I was getting dealt with it just a little bit, is that can, could we live for just a few minutes and attend to the Lord without looking at our phone? I think it's ironic, don't you, that on the back of my phone is an apple it's been bitten into. Isn't that ironic? You know, and Apple got another person in trouble, as I recall. I think we just need to remember, sometimes, sometimes the old disciplines are significant and not let us get technologically distracted. Number four, we've confused program for presence. Ravenhill said, if we, if we will do God's work in God's way at God's time with God's power, we shall have God's blessing. The sad truth about America and the church is that we're not pursuing God's presence. We pursue program. Now, we should be about the work of ministry. But our hunger is about scratching our itch most of the time and not pursuing righteousness. The Lord is teaching us, I believe, some things in these 
days even here at Legacy, and they're challenging days. I'll be the first one to admit it. I'm not blind to our challenges. But here's the key. If God is teaching us some things, then will we be teachable? There are some deep and profound lessons being offered to everyone if we as a people have ears to hear. I believe one of those lessons, and there may be many, is that he's forcing us into the simplicity of relying and trusting in him. If everything is stripped away in your life, will you still pursue him? That's the question. If everything in your personal life was stripped away, is Jesus still enough? These are the motives that are revealed for those who experience revival because in revival, that answers that question. I want Jesus more than anything. Number five, why revival tarries? We have substituted, I want to suggest, pragmatism for faith. Pragmatism is when you decide that you can help God out. All of us have been here at one moment or another. We, we become God's counselor. We basically say to the Lord, Lord, if you'd really ask me, I could help you out here. I know exactly how it should work and what you should do. And, and, and then we begin to implement all sorts of things that make sense to us, not realizing that God, if you'll read his word, often, if not every time, asks things that don't make sense to anyone. Ravenhill said, the evangelists, the evangelists today are very often prepared to be anything to anybody as long as they can get somebody to the altar. They glibly call out, who wants help? Who wants more power? Who wants a closer walk with God? Such a sinning, repenting, easy believism, Ravenhill writes, dishonors the blood and it prostitutes the altar. We, he says, I like this, we must alter the altar. For the altar is a place to die on. Let those who will not pay this price leave it alone. He goes on, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. So if your church is on fire, you'll not have to advertise it because the community will see there's a fire. I like that. That's what we're calling for. Lord, send the fire. Number six, why revival tarries? We have preached blessing to the neglect of expectation. Ravenhill writes, Oh, my ministering brethren, much of our praying is but giving God advice. Our praying is discolored with ambition, either for ourselves or for our denomination. Perish the thought. Our goal must be God alone. It is His honor that is sullied. His blessed Son who is ignored. His laws broken. His name profaned. His book forgotten. His house made a circus of social efforts. He said, and I'm quoting, if Jesus preached the same message most ministers preach today, he would have never been crucified. It's true. We preach, we market it, come, and Jesus will help pay your bills. He'll restore your marriage. He'll, he'll prosper you. He'll elevate you. He'll give you authority. And I'm not saying those aren't the blessings of the Lord, but that's how we market it. And we never look at people and say that the part of this whole deal that God will bless is when you realize you exchange your life for his so that you don't live anymore. You're gone. It's not about you. When we get to that point, Revival comes. Number seven, I'm hurrying. Revival tarries because we have unconfessed sin that is unaddressed. Ravenhill, I just love that book. If you never read it, gotta go get it. He said there are three persons living in each of us. 
the one we think we are, the one other people think we are, and the one God knows we are. It's interesting. I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago about going to YouTube and, and just watching some of the accounts of the Asbury Revival. Just, just type in Asbury Revival 1970 and all these testimonies will come up to the Asbury Revival. And um, one of the notable aspects of the Asbury Revival was that there was this uh, transparent confession of sin that took place mostly publicly. Now again, that's not required, but it, it, it's just a feature of the Asbury Revival. And during the revival season that was there, there was a girl that grabbed the, the president of the college, Dennis Kenlaw, and uh, she wanted to visit with him kind of at the back of the church, and, and she wanted to visit uh, because she told the president of the college, she said, you know, God's dealing with me, and I just need to tell somebody that I am a liar. I just have this need to lie. In fact, I lie when I don't even have to lie. I just, it just comes out of me. She said, what should I do about it? And his response was this. He said, I, I suggest that you go back and confess it to those that you can remember you lied to and ask their forgiveness. And she said, you know, I, I don't know that I could ever face those people. And he said, I suspect it will remind you then to never do it again. And she said, I'd be so embarrassed. He said, possibly. But I want to suggest that it might set you free. That's what revival looks like. And this is why revival tarries. And then finally, number eight. Revival tarries. Because we fostered bitterness and anger and offense and unforgiveness. One of the keys to the Asbury revival was the testimony of God's people who just confessed to bitterness and anger and offense and unforgiveness. They're the secret sins of the church. We know, we know, don't we? We know it's, churches are full of it. Most of us have experienced it. We know Christians walk with it. I'll step up myself and say that there have been times it's been hard for me to shake those feelings. None of us are immune. It's hard to shake them off. Why? Because they're rooted inside of us as we evaluate a situation. And usually it's rooted in injustice. We were somehow done wrong. And so there's this ease with which we live with it because we can justify it, don't we? We say to ourselves, the reason I feel this way is because there was an injustice done and I have a right to feel this way. I get it. But here's what I also get. This is what I'm learning and receiving from God. That I can change nobody else and I can't force someone else to get it. In fact, I, I can't make anybody. I, I'm just done even trying. If people are offended, they're just offended. I don't even know what to do to fix it anymore. But here's the deal. I refuse to allow things that I can address in my heart to go unaddressed. With God's help, hear me, this is where you need to be. You may be offended, but you can't let the person that you got the offense with 
steal what God has for you. Maybe, maybe they did offend you. Maybe you misinterpreted it. May, I don't even, it, there comes a moment that you quit trying to somehow understand it, justify it, or work through it, and you simply say, listen, whatever, I've got to get to the place where this is about me, and I'm not going to let anybody steal my joy. I'm just not losing sleep anymore. That person isn't going to make me lose sleep anymore over people coming or going or anything. I've had people say, you know, some people have left. Well, yeah, but I'm just not losing any sleep anymore. Well, don't you care? No. What, what, what do you do? You can't make people do anything. Whether it's Legacy Church or whether it's the largest church in America, I've come to the conclusion that unless revival comes to the church at large and awakening comes to America, we're in trouble the likes of which we've never seen. And some stupid offense that I am carrying, it will no longer blind my eyes to the spiritual reality of where we're at. People will always be dumb and stupid to you. They'll always be that way. They'll always, you'll go to church and you'll find people in church. I hear it and I've said this and I preach this and oftentimes I have to bring myself back to it and tell you this, that if you're in church life for a week, you'll be offended. It's just people. We're people. It's not right. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for it. I'm not releasing people for not trying to be kind and all the things they need to be. Nobody's saying that they're getting away with it. I'm just simply saying that it's eating you up and not doing anything to move us closer to God. So here's the question we all face and you'll face, and that is this. Will I allow my anger or my offense or my bitterness or my unforgiveness to stand in the way of God sending a revival to me or my church or will I get my feelings under the blood and cry out and say, God, I can't live without you anymore. I need you. All the world may be crazy, but it doesn't matter about the world. This is about me and this is about you in me. I'll conclude with this. Ravenhill wrote, this is, this is great. He said, many pastors criticize me for taking the gospel so seriously. But do they really think that on judgment day, Christ will chastise me saying, Leonard, you took me too seriously. When Napoleon was emperor of France, he met with his generals in a great war room and they were discussing the conquests of their battles, the plans for the future, the vision for where they were going. And there was a map that was tacked on to the wall. And when the generals walked in, they saw the Emperor Napoleon running his finger along the borders of China. And he was just running it along the borders of China with his finger. And he kept saying out loud as they gathered in the room, he kept saying, let her sleep. Let her sleep. And the generals, eventually one of them, stepped up and said, uh, Emperor, what, what, what are you doing? What, what, what is all that you're doing here? Putting your finger on her borders. And Napoleon said, China, China, gentlemen, is the sleeping giant. Let her sleep. For should she awake and realize her manpower and her resources that she has available, she will be unstoppable. So let her sleep. Sometimes I wonder if, if Satan doesn't gather his, his minions and he starts outlining the church and he looks at all his little devils and he says, gentlemen, 
let her sleep. She's a sleeping giant, but let her sleep. For if she ever awakens and realizes her manpower and her resources that she has at her command, she will be unstoppable. So, let her sleep. Revival is the moment when we become the devil's worst nightmare. We awaken and something happens. We are asleep no longer. And that's our prayer. Oh God, oh God, send your revival. Awaken us again. Stand with me, will you please?